0: With the new year just uh, a couple days away, it is an appropriate time to uh, both look forward as well as back. Uh, the next couple days, the uh, TV waves will be full of broadcasts that highlight both our achievements and our failures as, uh, as human beings. Uh, I picked up the most recent copy of Life magazine, Yesterday, and I was struck particularly by the number of catastrophes that we've seen in our world just these last few uh, months. First, the earthquake in Mexico left uh, 5,000 people dead and uh, 150,000 homeless. And then the eruption of uh, Nevado del Ruiz in Colombia, leaving more than 20,000 people either dead or missing. And as I was thinking of that, I was thinking that perhaps uh, there are other calamities or other ways in which uh, our lives have been left to shambles as we come to the end of this year, either through mistakes that we've made or personal failures that, uh, that we've endured this year. And what I'd like to do this morning is to take a look at a passage of Scripture that I think offers a word of encouragement if you're feeling a bit like a failure. Or if, as you look at your life, you're uh, thinking that it is a bit in a shambles. Would you turn with me to uh, John chapter 21? The account here is the account of Peter's restoration. Uh, John is the only gospel writer who includes it. The uh, synoptics omit it. It was written some uh, 15 to 20 years after Peter's death. And I think John included it in his gospel because he knew that at times when we feel a bit like failures, we could uh, glean encouragement and refreshment from this passage. Let's begin reading in verse 1. John says, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. And Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they replied, We will come with you also. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now John tells us that uh, this happened after these things he's referring to the uh, two prior appearances of our Lord uh, recorded for us in John twenty. You remember the story where the Lord appeared to the uh, uh, to the eleven minus Thomas. He uh, shared a meal with them, and then uh, because of Thomas's uh, doubting, he came back a few days later and uh, had dinner with them again. John says that following these two earlier manifestations of our lord he appears again but this time at the sea of tiberus and that's simply uh, one of several names for the sea of galilee if you remember in the uh, the gospel of mark and matthew jesus told his disciples that uh, after he uh, was raised from the dead that he would meet them in galilee he met mary uh, who had come to the tomb uh, after his resurrection, and when he uh, spoke with her, he said, Go tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. And now the Lord had, uh, had appeared in Galilee, as he had promised, to seven disciples. We're told that Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel were there, along with uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and then two others who uh, remain unnamed at this point. And I can just kind of picture the setting. The, uh, uh the sun is, is going down. It's, it's evening. And, uh, that's usually the best time to go fishing, uh, in Palestine. Peter says to the disciples, I'm going fishing. And, and the other six uh, chime in along with him. Well, well, we'll come along with you. And they all hop into the boat and uh, row out, uh, a ways into the middle of the lake and uh, spend all night fishing. For myself, I think that there's more than a simple fishing trip that John has in mind here. If you recall the, uh, the uh, Last Supper and then the account of, of Jesus' arrest, you'll remember that just prior to this, a matter of, of a few days or a week or two prior to this, Peter had vowed allegiance to the Lord. He said, uh, though all may fall away, Lord, I won't. I'll be there by your side. He said in Luke's uh, gospel to the Lord that uh, I am both ready to go to prison and to death for you. And yet Peter had not succeeded in uh, living up to those promises. He failed. And uh, you remember the story. Jesus was arrested in the garden. He was taken to the... uh, uh, to the high priest's house. Uh, at his arrest, all of his disciples scattered. Peter scattered. Uh, he ran too, but he ran in the direction of the Lord, at a, uh, kept at a distance back. And uh, he entered the courtyard. And he was warming himself by the, the uh, charcoal fire, kind of watching the, the uh, trial proceedings going on. And a little slave girl came up to Peter, and, and she kind of uh, looked him over once or twice and, and she said, you're, you're one of the Lord's followers, aren't you? You're one of Jesus' followers. Peter said, no, not me. I don't belong to him. And then an old man came up with his cane and, and he was warming himself by his fire and uh, he said, aren't you a Galilean? You must know Christ. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, Peter said, no, it's not me. And then finally, the, uh, the inevitable third denial. And Luke in his gospel says that uh, as soon as Peter had denied the Lord the third time, the cock crowed. And Luke says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I can just imagine how Peter must have felt the Lord's piercing look as the cock crows and as Peter realized that he hadn't lived up to his promises. Probably felt ashamed, certainly felt like he was a failure, perhaps felt like the Lord could never use him again. And maybe as you review 1985, uh, you feel a bit like that, um, if you're like me, you probably started out well last January with uh, a lot of promises, resolutions to be a better husband or maybe a better wife or parent. Or maybe a, a vow to read the scriptures more, to study or to pray. And because we've all got that that one secret area that Satan knows about and we tend to, to fall uh, into sin with most often. Maybe, like me, you vowed to, to never do it again, whatever that is for you, and failed. And if, if, you've, uh, if you've failed, then, then you probably know how Peter felt. And yet, to make matters worse, though the Lord had appeared to Peter twice prior to this in the groups of the eleven There had been no personal exchange between the two. There's nothing in the scriptures that tells us how the Lord and Peter worked it out. So Peter was probably feeling crushed by this point. And for myself, I believe that that, uh, Peter was giving up the ministry. And John writes chapter 21 to tell us how the Lord restored him. In fact, the grammar in the original even suggests this the verb in verse 3, I am going is what the Greek grammarians call a a present progressive or present durative. It has the idea of I am going and I'm going to keep on going until someone tells me differently and you can see the impact or the influence that Peter was even at this point continuing to have on the others because six more hop in the boat with him And they row out into the middle of the lake. Peter thought, if I can't succeed at ministry, why try? Why not go back to something that I know how to do? Something that I've been trained to do by profession. Something that I can succeed at. Why not go back to fishing? Yet in verse 3, John tells us that uh, though they fished all night, they couldn't catch a thing. Have you ever had that experience? where you've uh, tried to run from the Lord, where you've tried to uh, escape His will or His plan for your life, to do something that you preferred to do, only to find that uh, it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't fulfill? I have. Uh, It's one of the reasons why I can relate so well to Peter. Well, let's see how the Lord restored him and brings him back to a place of of usefulness. In verse 4, John says, But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. He said to them, Little children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. They cast, therefore, and and when they did, they were not able to haul it in because of the great multitude of fish. Just try and picture the setting in your mind. You're in the middle of a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and there's a stranger off at a distance. John tells us that it was, uh, it was just about dawn. They didn't recognize who he was, either because it was still too dark, or maybe uh, he was appearing in his resurrected body. Or who knows, maybe there was a temperature inversion uh, hanging over the Sea of Galilee and couldn't see through the fog and the smog. But uh, for whatever reason, uh, they hear the voice and they see faintly the figure. And he says, Have you caught any fish? And they reluctantly shake their head no. And he says, Well, cast cast the net one more time. If I were them, I probably would have... Uh, Complained, "Oh, you got to be kidding! I've been fishing all night. We've tried that right side. We've tried the left side. We've tried in front of the boat and behind the boat. And there's nothing. There's no fish out here." Uh, but they didn't. They responded uh, obediently with hopefulness, and uh, and they land the largest catch of fish. John says that they they had ever caught before. And I imagine if I were in the boat, I probably would have been rejoicing at that point, having worked so hard and been so tired and finally uh, finally landing such a large catch. And yet as I read this uh, passage this last week, I had to ask myself the question, why this miracle? You know, the Lord has walked on water before. He's uh, ceased the storms. Why would he multiply fish? And then I remembered, as perhaps Peter remembered, that three years prior to this, this was the exact miracle that the Lord used to restore Peter, or rather to call him, into the ministry. You remember the story in Luke chapter 5. Luke tells us that uh, Jesus had been teaching up in the uh, northern uh, parts of Galilee. He came to Capernaum and he was teaching on uh, on the beach. And the crowds began to press in around him. And it became so crowded that people couldn't even see him, and he was having a hard time teaching. And he saw a couple fishermen who had been fishing all night, and they were cleaning their nets uh, on the, the, uh, the edge of the shore. And uh, one of the, one of the uh, fishermen was Peter. And he, he went up to Peter and said, Peter, can I borrow your boat for a few minutes? I'd like to, uh, I'd like to have you row me out. A few uh, yards so I can teach this, uh, this multitude of people. And if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you know that it's, it's set in a basin that's surrounded by mountains all the way around. And as you sit in the middle of the lake and you look out, it, it creates a natural amphitheater. So as people were, were sitting there, the Lord taught them. And when he was done teaching, he turned to Peter and he said, Peter, have you caught any fish? And Peter said, Lord, we've, uh, we've worked all night long and haven't caught a thing. And he said, cast your net one more time. And Peter cast his net. And they caught so much fish that the, that the nets began to tear. And, and James and John had to bring their boat over to help drag the, uh, the fish to shore. And Peter fell on his knees in, his, in, in the boat. And he, he said to the Lord, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus looked at Peter with those eyes, and he he picked him up, and he said, Peter, from now on you're going to be catching men. And Luke tells us that as soon as they got to shore, all four fishermen left their boats, and they followed the Lord. And for the next two and a half years, Jesus taught them how to minister to people. And yet Peter had not done all that well. And here as they were sitting in this boat some two and a half years later, the Lord performs the same miracle. And you can imagine what must have gone on in Peter's mind. Perhaps he realized through this miracle that that the Lord wanted to use him after all. That he hadn't been disqualified from service or from ministry. And in verse 7, we're told that John turns to Peter and, and John says, It's the Lord! And when Simon heard it, Simon Peter heard it, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. You see, he doesn't fall to his knees and shout, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. He doesn't do that this time. Instead, he jumps into the lake and starts swimming towards his Lord. And though we'll never know for sure, uh, I'd like to believe that that Peter probably broke all speed records that night for the 100-yard freestyle. The other disciples followed Peter. Verse 8, John says, But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away. And they were dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out of the boat, Out upon the land they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land, full of large fish, in fact 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to to question him, Who are you? knowing that it was the Lord. Well, they all arrive on shore, Peter uh, a little bit more soaked than the others. And the Lord invites them to share breakfast with him. And he says, uh, go get some of your fish that you've just caught. And uh, Peter leads the uh, the band of men to, to drag the nets to shore. And in fact, John tells us that there were 153 fish. And you may wonder, as I do, or as I did, uh, why John tells us that there were 153. I checked some of the commentators this week, and and there are all sorts of uh, explanations or theories offered for this. One commentator said that uh, this was uh, significant because it pointed to the year 153 A.D., though I, I failed in all my study to find anything significant that happened in 153 A.D. Another commentator suggested that 100 stands for the Gentiles because there are so many of them and 50 stands for the Jews because there are fewer and 3 stands for the Trinity. Uh, Maybe. Though I'm not sure that that was uh, the authorial intent here. For myself, I think that The significance is in the fact that this was a large catch. In fact, so large that John wanted us to know the number. Because if Peter was to be restored to ministry, it meant that he would have to leave fishing to serve people. And that would cost him. And this perhaps was a very lucrative catch that Peter would have to turn away from. Well, they have breakfast together, and when they're done, John tells us that they have that personal exchange, the heart-to-heart talk between Peter and Jesus. Beginning in verse 15, John says, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. And Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. And Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Now Peter is asked three times the same question. Do you love me? And each time he responds with the affirmative, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And for myself, I don't believe that Peter was asked these questions because the Lord doubted the sincerity of his love. I think the Lord asked these questions because he wanted Peter to know that he loved the Lord. You see, when Peter had denied the Lord, his devotion and commitment to Christ had been called uh, into question. And Peter held it in in suspect himself. So these questions then are intended to force Peter to examine his faith and to come to that settled assurance that yes, I really do love the Lord. No matter what mistakes I've made, no matter how badly I've failed him, I, I really do love him. And I think as well that uh, the Lord asked these questions three times so that Peter could say three times, I love you, Lord, just as he had said three times days before, I don't know him. Now there are four observations that I'd like to make regarding, regarding these three questions. The first has to do with verse 15. You'll notice that there's a comparative pronoun used in the first question that's dropped in the second and the third. The Lord asks Peter, Do you love me more than these? And the natural question for us is, What are the these? To what is Jesus asking Peter to compare his love? And there are three possibilities. The first is that the Lord was asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than you love these disciples? Though I'm not really sure how that would fit into the flow of thought or the context. So for myself, I, I have to dismiss that possibility. The second one uh, would work a little bit better. It would go something like this. Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? In other words, is your love for me greater than the love that the other six have for me. And some have suggested that uh, because Peter had vowed to have uh, a stronger commitment to Christ some days prior to this, he said, though all may fall away, I will never fall away. They suggest that this is why the Lord asked this question. In other words, Peter, are you still sure that your love for me is greater than everyone else? But for myself, I don't think that our Lord works that way. I don't think that he asks us to compare our love for him with the love that others have for him. And also, you'll notice that Peter responds, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And if I were Peter, having just failed the way he did, I don't think I'd have the courage to respond affirmatively. There's a third possibility. This is the one that I like. Peter, do you love me more than these things, namely the fish, the nets, the boats, and all that they represent? You see, I think the Lord was asking Peter, what are you going to fish for? Are you going to fish for perch? Or are you going to fish for men? And I think that this is the way that the Lord deals with us as well when we begin to stray or we've failed we've lost sight of his plan for our lives and we begin to uh, to move out in a different direction he gently calls us back by saying ron do you love me more than and he fills in the blank ron do you love me more than your career or he might ask others uh, do you love me more than your hobbies Or your recreation? Or your recreational vehicles? Or do you love me more than your home? Do you love me more than the interior decorating that you're spending so much time doing in your home right now? Do you love me more than the money that you're saving for that vacation that you've wanted to take for so long? Or do you love me more than the money that you're putting away for your retirement? Or do you love me more than your clothes? Or even, do you love me more than your children? And all the time that you spend providing for them. He calls us back in the same way by asking us to uh, to examine our priorities and to be honest with Him regarding our love. Now, The second observation that I'd like to make has to do with the verbs that he uses in these three questions. The verb uh, that's translated in English, love, in each of these three questions, uh, is actually two different words in the original. The Lord uses one word, Peter uses the other. If you have a New American Standard, you'll notice in the margin that uh, agapao is the the word that... uh, jesus uses it refers to volitional love a commitment of the will and phileo is the is the love or the word translated love which uh peter uses it has to do with the the fond affection or the warmth uh the uh, uh, the kindred spirit or the the uh the likeness that springs forth from from our heart for another person if you have an niv the uh The word agapao is translated truly love, when the Lord uses it in the first two questions. And phileo is translated love. And you'll notice that in the third question of our Lord, John changes the use of his word from agapao to phileo. And some have suggested that Jesus changed the question, literally changed the question, in order to come down to Peter's level, to meet Peter where he was at. And I realize I'm going to be going out on a limb and saying this because most of the sermons that you've ever heard will make a big deal about the change in, in words. But for myself, I don't think that John intended for a distinction to be made. Remember that Jesus and Peter were speaking in Aramaic. In Aramaic, there was only one word for love. So any change that Peter made, he made because he felt it was important or because he liked to do that. And characteristically, John uses synonyms without a fine shade of nuance. In fact, just one chapter prior to this, in, in uh, chapter 20, verse 2, Uh, John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And there he uses phileo. Though in chapter 21 he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And he uses agapao. And then finally, you'll notice that it isn't so much the word that Jesus used that upset Peter. In verse 17 he says... Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. In other words, Peter was disheartened because Jesus asked the question three times. And it forced Peter to answer the question in contrast to the three denials. All that simply to say that the Lord's intention here was not to uh, was not to cause Peter to uh, to feel awkward about the kind of love that he could vow to the Lord, but simply to bring Peter to a a settled place of assurance regarding the love that he had for our Lord. And I think that's what the Lord does with us. He just keeps asking the question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And if We respond affirmatively, then, like Peter, there's a command. And that's my third observation. Peter is implored each time the question is asked to minister. Tend my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. See, Peter is reinstated in the ministry, and with that command is the Lord's confidence. It's as if the Lord was putting his arm around Peter and saying, I believe in you, Peter. Because you love me, you're qualified. I want you to get out there and start serving people again. And by the way, I think it's significant for us to note that, that this passage teaches that the prerequisite for ministry is our love for the Lord, not necessarily our love for his sheep. He says, do you love me? And if we say yes, as Peter did, then the command is feed my sheep. But he never asks, do you love my sheep? And I I think that's helpful because for those of us who are serving one another in ministry, you know that sheep are not always the easiest people to love. They're oftentimes obstinate, critical, harsh. Um... Think of, of mothers with preschoolers at home. You know, and, and they're probably the little lambs that uh, we're commanded to, uh, to feed. We've got two preschoolers at home with a third on the way. And uh, I know from personal experience that it is not easy to, uh, to feed them uh, all the time. Yet we do it in our home because we love the Lord, and those of you who are parents know exactly what I'm what I'm speaking of. Or maybe you can think of uh, neighbors who are obstinate, critical. They just don't do things the way you'd like them to. They 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 don't mow their grass. Uh, they don't. They won't paint their house. You know, and theirs is the only house on the block that that is making the whole place uh, look bad. Or maybe they have children that are a little bit different and are a bad influence on yours. And it's hard to love them, isn't it? Or maybe it's employers that demand too much or don't seem to treat us fairly. Or maybe employees that uh, seem to want to take advantage of us. And quite often it's our spouses that are the uh, the stinky sheep that we find it hard to love. Yet I think it's helpful that the Lord says, uh, do you love me? And if you do, then you'll feed my sheep. Now the fourth observation is not in the text. The fourth It has to do with the questions that Peter is not asked. You see, the Lord never asked Peter, Why would you do it? Why did you deny me? He never asked Peter, Peter, how can I be sure you'll never do it again? Peter, what makes you so confident that you're really cut out for ministry? Now, the Lord didn't ask any of those questions. And uh, thankfully, he didn't, because if he did, who of us would stand a chance? See, those are the kinds of questions that we tend to want to ask one another when they failed us. But the Lord's love and forgiveness is unconditional. He merely asked Peter, as he asks us, to reaffirm his love. And he wasn't looking for perfection in Peter, simply progress. Simply a heart that desired to please. And so Peter was restored to a place of usefulness in the kingdom. And if you turn the page uh, uh, just once, you'll see in the book of Acts the way that the Lord used Peter. Thousands of people came to Christ on the day of Pentecost because of Peter's willingness to feed the sheep. And I think the Lord wants to use us in the same way, particularly in this next year, if we're simply willing to say, I love you, I'm willing to follow and to be used. Yet for Peter, it wasn't enough for him to be reinstated into ministry or to be restored. You see, the Lord also wanted him to know that it was going to cost him something. And that's why John goes on in verses 18 and 19, to record more of the conversation. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. You see, for Peter... The commitment would cost him his very life. John writes this, as I said before, after Peter's death. And the early church took verse 18 as a prophetic word from our Lord that uh, Peter would, would be crucified. And Eusebius, the early church historian, tells us that late in Peter's life, he went to Rome, he was imprisoned, and was sentenced to be uh, hung on the cross. And in fact, he tells us that Peter asked to be hung upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus died. Yet, despite all of the agony and all of the pain that lay before him, the Lord commands follow me. And I think that's instructive as well. We too need to remember that faithfulness to God. Is not always going to be easy. It won't always be satisfying as we would like it to be. I think of of Dan and Monica Brown and uh, their team members that have invested two years uh, on the field, even more preparing for it, to minister uh, in the Middle East. And yet, just this fall, the team was arrested. And... uh, the men were required to spend five, nearly six weeks in, in prison, separated from their their wives and children. It cost them to follow the Lord. It cost them to love him. Now it may not cost us in the same way, but on the other hand, it may cost us in, in other ways. It may cost us time or convenience. It may cost us money. Thinking particularly in in our parenting, it may mean putting off something that we've really wanted to do for a long time, maybe to take that vacation or to, to buy that whatever for our home, because we're investing our money in our children instead. It may mean feeling ostracized from other people, maybe neighbors or work associates, and in some cases it may even mean losing our job because we're willing to stand for righteousness and for what Jesus stood for because we're unable to say yes I'll do that if if it happens to be wrong and I wonder how in the world can we uh, can we ever follow the lord if uh, if it will cost us and there's no no way of knowing what it will cost because God has a different plan a different track that each of us are running on. Well, how can we remain faithful? How can we uh, truly love the Lord? Well, I think John gives us a clue in verses 20 through 22, and that has to do with focusing on Him rather than focusing on others. John says, Peter Therefore, or excuse me, Peter turning around saw John, the disciple that Jesus loved, verse 21. And Peter said to the Lord, Well, what about this man? I can just picture Peter. He's thinking, If it's going to cost me my life, what's it going to cost him? And what about these other five guys that are on the beach with us? What's it going to cost them? and the lord responds by saying uh, peter if uh, if i want him to remain until i come in other words if i spare his life what is that to you peter you follow me you follow me peter no matter what i'm doing with other people you see looking at others is always a losing proposition One of the reasons is that we like to compare our struggles with other people's comforts. Now, they don't have it quite as bad as we do. They're not struggling financially. Their businesses are are going well. You know, they've got the newer car. They've got the nicer clothes. Uh, uh, Their children are following the Lord. And by comparison, We always seem to be losers. And we can't help but ask the question of the Lord, Why me and not them? Why do you keep giving it to me? All of these troubles and trials and frustrations. And frankly, there isn't an easy answer for that. Someday we'll be able to ask the Lord... And uh, perhaps he'll have an answer for us. But for now, the only thing that, uh, that the Scripture has to say to us is, follow me. Don't look at others. Don't worry what I'm doing in their life. You follow me. And you see, that really is the bottom line, isn't it? To Follow the Lord, to love Him, and to respond in obedience. Now, with New Year's... Just a couple days away, if you're like me, perhaps you're tempted to uh, begin thinking about the New Year's resolutions, you know, to, to be a better husband or a better wife or a better parent or or maybe it's to exercise a little bit more or eat less or, uh, especially after Christmas, that, that was uh, my first resolution that came to mind the day after Christmas is, got to go on a diet. Perhaps some of you can identify. Or perhaps it's a resolution to, uh, to study the scriptures more or to fellowship more regularly. Well, as good as those are, let me suggest just one New Year's resolution for this next year. Because if I'm honest with myself, I can't even remember 90% of the resolutions I made last January and the other 10% that I do remember I never kept to begin with. In fact, in Peters and Waterman's book uh, In Search of Excellence, they say that simplicity is the key to success. And one of the watchwords for the, the big companies, the excellent companies that they talk about goes like this. More than two objectives is no objective. So. Try this one on for uh, this next year. And that's namely to love and follow the Lord. And let Him worry about all all the other things. Just simply to reaffirm our commitment to Him, our affection and our love for Him, and to say, I'm willing to follow. I'm listening. I want to be attentive to Your voice, Lord. I want to be obedient to what You ask of me. I just want to follow You. This last October, the elders here at Cole went up to uh, Cascade for a couple days on their annual uh, elders retreat, and I was told when they returned that their objective for this next year is simply to study the word and to pray, as the, uh, uh, the leaders of the first church did in Acts chapter 6. And I thought how refreshing that is, that that's their priority. And I think perhaps we need to, to examine our priorities as we uh, begin this new year and to reflect on what the Lord would want of us. And as you look back over 1985, if you've somehow failed the Lord, if, if you've blown it, If you feel like your life is in a shambles, that you've uh, denied the Lord in some way, please know that He loves you and He extends His forgiveness and acceptance. His love for you hasn't changed. You're not disqualified. Just like Peter, He wants to use you. And all you need to do is to say as Peter did, I love you, Lord, and yes, I'll follow. I'll follow where you lead. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, thank you for unconditional love and forgiveness. Thank you for this example from Peter's life. We so much want to say this morning that we love you and that we want you to be the the priority of our life. We want to uh, to be preoccupied with knowing you more this next year, and yet, Father, we're we're weak, and we know that uh, uh, our tendency is to uh, to take our eyes off of you and to look at others or our circumstances or or even our inadequacies, and to lose sight of the uh, the power resident within us because you live. So, Father, I pray that you would gently prod us each day to, to look at you, to draw upon your resources, and to love you as, as we really want to. We look forward to this new year with anticipation of what you're going to do in our lives and with our families. And uh, we simply want to say thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.